Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am swell. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, the box office is back, baby! But for how long? That's the question movie lovers are nervously asking themselves after the incredible weekend numbers put up by Barbie and Oppenheimer, a.k.a. Barbenheimer. It was the fourth biggest weekend ever at the North American box office overall. Uh, the first time two movies have ever opened to more than $80 million each. And the biggest opening ever for a movie directed by a woman with the, and the second biggest biopic opening ever of all time after American Sniper. Third highest, depending on how we want to count The Passion of the Christ. It's an amazing feat for two movies that are originals rather than sequels or remakes or reboots. Uh, they both earned an A from CinemaScore audiences in addition to fresh ratings above 90% from Rotten Tomatoes critics. All in all, a triumph. The year-to-date box office is up 15% over last year, and fun little fact, uh, as of last weekend, it was only up 11%. So the, the Barbenheimer bump is real. It, it's 4% of the annual box office. That number is going to tick higher, I think, because Oppenheimer and Barbie look to have pretty good legs as everyone kind of gets through the August doldrum. I, I, there's there's not a ton of great stuff on the horizon, though. I don't, I don't think we should be too surprised if Meg 2 throws up a crooked number on us. The movies are back, baby. But again, no one was sure for how long, because in the midst of this triumph... There is looming tragedy. The studios are already pushing release dates back thanks to the WGA and SAG strikes, specifically the SAG strikes, because the union is forbidding actors from doing PR work on behalf of their films. MGM's Zendaya-led tennis threesome movie, that's a new genre, by the way, tennis threesome movie, uh, Challengers has been, uh, it had been set to open this year's Venice Film Festival but it has now been pushed back to spring 2024. A24's Problemista has been pushed off of its release date. More delays are likely to come, particularly in the kind of indie, smaller realm where you need the stars to get out there on the carpet and sell these things. But the big fear, the real big fear, is less the indie art house stuff and more the big budget franchise stuff, right? WB is already considering pushing back Dune 2. There's talk about pushing back the, the next Aquaman movie. If that happens, then the, the calendar is just barren for the rest of the year. There, there is just, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of trouble on the horizon. Looking at the schedule moves is giving me a very depressing case of deja vu. It feels like 2020 all over again. Uh, if you are a daily reader of the trades, as I am, there was a steady drip of bad news back in that year during uh, the COVID crisis. Movies getting pushed back three months, then six months, then a year, then three more months. You know, we, we're not ready yet. We're not sure if audiences are coming back. When are they going to come back? I don't know. Let's delay it another three months. Again, this feels like COVID redux, except it's entirely self-inflicted by the studios and the actors who can't get it together and hammer out a deal. The fact that there's no one of any stature to force a common sense, at least placeholder deal, like a year year or two to get uh, all our ducks in order as the box office comes back a little bit more. Um, you know, something like actors get raises at inflation plus 2%. And then there's a moratorium on AI usage. Studios get to hold on to streaming revenue for another year or two while we figure out exactly how the dynamics of all this work. Um, I, I feel like the fact that nobody can put this together, uh, even again, a short-term, let's just get through the next year deal, is suicidal. It's just suicidal. I, I am not sure the theater chains can survive another COVID-like disruption. And 
the studios are going to be insane to kill this golden goose. I don't know, Peter. I just look at all this and, uh, you know, on the one hand, I'm real happy that Oppenheimer's doing real well. And I like that Barbie's doing real well. COVID was bad for the industry, but look, black swans were unpredictable. This was something everyone in Hollywood should have seen coming and should have spent the last year or two trying to avoid. And they haven't. And we're going to, it's, everybody's screwed. Sonny, can I ask you a quick, dumb, and maybe really both of you a quick, dumb question before Peter starts? How much do you think the explosion of generative AI over the last six months changed the dynamic here? I mean, obviously the money is huge, but the generative AI threat, I think, feels so existential to people that I wonder if that did come on kind of quickly in a way that upended this. Frankly, I think it's a bigger deal for the writers and the actors. The thing the actors have to should should be more worried about is the use of digital images. Uh, but that's that's a technology that is you know has been around for a while. I don't think AI is quite to the point where it's about to replace actors. Yeah, I, I think Sonny's right about that. Is that there are questions about what you can do with AI when it comes to actors, but those are actually resolvable questions because we actually have a pretty strong culture of you own your likeness. And the only way somebody can use your likeness is if you sign it away. And it seems to me pretty straightforward that there's going to be some sort of deal about limitations on likeness use when it comes to AI. But we don't have strong um, cultural or, or contractual or like there's no standard for what if no one wrote this? What if literally this thing was sort of cobbled together by a computer that had read a bunch of scripts and also a lot of other stuff? And th that's not a question that we have answered before and certainly not at any high level. And so that one is, I think, going to be harder. I think Sonny's right here. Sonny is totally right about the bigger question here, which is what is going to happen to theater chains? Because I think there will still be movie writers and movie actors and movie producers and movie studios at the end of this. There might be fewer of them. The business might be different. There might be people who are mad. There might be people who made out like bandits. But movie theaters cannot survive an extended disruption. And they are, hostage is not exactly the right word, but they are not in charge here. They are not at the negotiating table in like a, a direct sense. This is the negotiations are between the writers and the producers and the actors and the producers. But it is it is the theaters the people who play the movies who are most at risk of disappearing here. And it's a kind of ironic development because it was, the business has been in this place where it's been like, do we really need theaters? Maybe we can do it all via streaming. And then post COVID, after they didn't have theaters for a year, they were like, oh, wow, actually we really need theaters because every movie, like every hit is virtually all hits start with some a, a large amount of money being made at theaters. And you can't, especially in the streaming age, you can't really build a hit without them. And we may be entering a world in which AMC cannot survive, in which the big theater chains cannot survive simply because, you know, first they took a big hit for from COVID and then it is quite possible. I mean, I, we've talked about this amongst ourselves. It is quite possible that these strikes last through next year sometime. And if the writer's strike and the actor's strike both last through, let's say, the Oscars or right up until the Oscars and they, uh, they, they resolve things right before the Oscars, that means that all of the movies that were supposed to come out in summer of 2024 are not going to come out in summer of 2024 because 
the vast majority of them, production is not finished on yet. And it's certainly anything that was scheduled to come out any big franchise film, any big hit or likely hit that was going to come out at the end of 24 is just definitely not coming out next year. And so that could mean if we're talking about a nine month strike or something like that, that could mean something like a year in which you don't quite have no movies coming out, but you have you have a huge disruption to the calendar, maybe even a bigger disruption to the actual calendar than COVID because COVID, you know, it was really bad. I don't want to understate it, but COVID, they stopped production in early March on basically everything. And there were movies back in production, big budget movies back in production by July. And then there were smaller things that were being made sort of throughout like, oh, what can we make in this weird new environment? You know, uh, there was that Jake Gyllenhaal movie about the, um, ambulance dispatcher guy. Uh, I'm now just like for blanking on the name of this, right? But like, what can we make in ways that like don't require a bunch of people to be in the same room together? Malcolm they and made Murray. stuff. That's a different one. No, That's no, a different Jake one. one. Yeah, but Malcolm yeah. and Murray was like, was, uh, was billed as the first movie to go back into production. And this is the thing that is, that I, that I think people are only just now, at least people outside the industry are only just now starting to realize there is going to be effectively no production or at least no production in the United States until this stuff is resolved. And if this stuff is not resolved until March of next year, then that means the better part of a year without anything being made, basically everything grinds to a halt. And at some point, the release calendar is going to reflect that. Alyssa, I, I know we, we all need to be very supportive of labor and you know, capital is bad and all that. At the same time, Look, I am basically at the point where I just want every everyone to take a bad deal and move on. Bad for both sides. Move on for like 18 months and revisit this after again, like at a point where theaters have at least gotten back to like 90 percent of uh, 2018, 2019 revenue, because I, I just I once again, my, my big fear here is not for the actors, not for the studios, not for the writers. It is the structural damage this is going to do to the entire theatrical industry. Yeah, no, I think it's a huge problem. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners read Matt Levine's Money Stuff newsletter from Bloomberg Opinion, but he has written a lot about the sort of financial engineering that AMC has done to kind of capitalize on its meme stock status. Basically, I I cannot explain it nearly as well as Levine does, but Adam Aaron, who runs AMC, AMC has basically created new classes of stock to allow people who are into AMC as a meme stock to be allowed to buy more stock in AMC and has used this to sort of pay down debt and try and keep the company financially viable. But you know what's a lot easier than doing complicated financial engineering? Putting movies on screen in movie theaters. And, you know, I do not think particularly highly of the you know, sort of executives who appear to be running the movie studios right now after they chased, you know, Wall Street's demand for streaming growth into blowing up one part of their business model. And now, you know, as they are facing a prolonged strike that threatens, you know, a big cash pillar of their remaining business model, you know, are are just playing this incredibly poorly in public. But yeah, I, I would like movie theaters to survive. I enjoy going to the cinema quite a bit. Um, you know, I think like niche theaters like the Alamo, which we all love, are probably going to survive because they have alternate programming. But, you know, that is that is not the reality of movie viewership for most Americans. 
these chains are already in a lot of trouble. And if these executives cannot find themselves a viable deal, you know, <laughs> they have not covered themselves in glory business-wise the last decade. And having Bob Iger like spout off at Sun Valley about how dumb the unions are, just there appears to be no one smart here. And I do not get it. I, I do not... I do not understand how there is not somebody who is working on some sort of consensus, right? Like, why does Aria Manual exist if not for this moment, right? It's like, where is our season of Entourage where, like, Ari solves the strike and, you know, brings the Hollywood back together and back to work? It just, it appears to be a situation radically devoid of leadership and radically devoid of business vision. And that seems like an incredibly terrible combination. I agree that the executives are not covering themselves in glory and they don't appear to be negotiating in ways that I think are productive to finding a deal. At the same time, the thing that I just want to sort of go back to that we've talked about before, but is, is, I think, sort of worth thinking about is almost everyone expects that in the next 10 years or so, there's going to be a retrenchment in Hollywood. There's just going to be less money to go around. Oh, yeah. And less money to go around means someone is going to get less. It's not not just someone. Someone's. Everyone is, in some sense, going to have to have to accept something like less. Okay, maybe not literally every single individual, but every group is going to have to accept something like less. And when you read, you know, again, friend of the pod, Zach Stentz in the New York Times, and he says... The best case scenario is a somewhat better deal for a smaller number of writers. I think there's probably something like the same logic for the actors in place as well. And it's not at all clear to me that the unions have actually collectively recognized, and I understand that collective recognition is like a, a fraught term, like, yes, right, they're, they're a group, but it's also a bunch of individual people. It's not at all clear to me that the union leadership has kind of understood that and communicated to the rank and file, the best case scenario here is some of you will come out better, but there's probably less overall opportunity. And that's something that every, you know, again, it's Bob Iger is not negotiating well on this, right? When you're like, like, you don't go to the negotiating table and say, actually, these people are idiots. Like, even if you think that, this is not a like yeah. a, a good way to talk yeah. to to talk to people who you need to make your product. On the other hand, it's also like the the other side, like they're like the 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 unions are going to need to figure out like what sort of package they can accept that does better by some of their members, but probably if you're looking at a shrinking pool of money, does worse by some of them, especially the folks on the fringes. In some ways, of course, I'm going to say, you know, what's going to lead to less money in the industry for everyone is if the theatrical. Uh, yeah, if all, if the, all theaters the theaters close, close yeah. and a theatrical exhibition is reduced to a niche rump in a handful of cities, uh, as opposed to uh, the sort of thing that can generate, uh, you know, nine figures for an individual project, that's going to lead to less money for everyone. That's just that. That's yeah, I, I actually don't understand. You know, I said earlier that, that the theater owners weren't at the negotiating table, but I don't understand why NATO isn't out there saying, we don't care what deal you come to, but if you don't come to one, we won't exist. And opening weekends like Barbie and Oppenheimer will not be possible. It's there simply will not be enough screens in yep. the United States to make hits like this anymore because we are going to have to shut down buildings because what we do is we own buildings. Well, they don't even own really the buildings. Really big, really expensive. OK, fine. We rent. They lease. We, what we do is we manage 
really big, really expensive buildings. And if there's nobody in them buying our popcorn, then we're shutting those buildings down. And that means hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue that can't be split between anyone. No one gets it now. Yeah. Anyway, super depressing. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that Hollywood is about to shoot itself right in the foot in the midst of its race to recover audiences? Uh, Alyssa. It's controversial. Peter. Controversy, but also like predictable. It's a controversy. And I swear to God, I'm going to I'm going to get out there on the picket line myself with a sign that says, stop, stop it. Both of you stop. Get together. Make a deal. All, all of all I, of my I, all of my guild friends are like so mad at me right now. But like I, I just I am. Come on. I would support an end to this strike negotiated by Sunny Bunch personally. I, I, you give mm. me you give me twenty minutes <laughs> and a piece of paper, and I'll put a deal together that nobody will like, but will do will benefit me personally by keeping movie theaters open. Not even financially, just like mental health wise. All right. It might even be bad for you financially. Yeah, but probably, probably cost me money. I really like how the Sunny Bunch position for the last several years has been, I don't care, keep movie theaters open. So I, I have one guiding star. <laughs> That's it. That's all I care about. All right. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus show on Christopher Nolan. Speaking of whom, on to our main event, Oppenheimer. <laughs> Just for your own scheduling purpose, because a lot of people out there asking, they're like, what's across the movie all going to do? Are they going to do Oppenheimer first or Barbie? We're doing Oppenheimer first and we're doing Barbie next week. And then maybe we'll do both of them together in the third week. I don't know. Maybe we'll do a we'll do a whole Boppenheimer show. So don't worry. We're going we're going to get to Barbie, but we're doing Oppenheimer this week. It stars Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer, the so-called father of the atomic bomb, as he races the Germans to develop the first nuclear weapon and attempts to fend off an effort to strip him of his security clearance for his past dealings with communists. These are handled in two interwoven storytelling uh, timelines, right? The, the first features a middle-aged Oppenheimer talking to a security board about his life, which we see in flashback, and that makes up most of the narrative spine of the film. The second timeline, which is shot in black and white, uh, follows Admiral Louis Strauss, who is uh, Strauss, Strauss, who is played by Robert Downey Jr. as he navigates his confirmation for Commerce Secretary under uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, which has hit choppy waters thanks to his backdoor efforts to torpedo Oppenheimer's career. On one level, Oppenheimer is pretty straightforward about the race to develop the atomic bomb. On another more real level, though, it's about the two great moral quandaries uh, that were at the heart of the mid-century rise of the American empire. The first had to do with the difficulty of mutually assured destruction uh, and the knowledge that the Pax Americana really rested on the threat of total and complete nuclear annihilation all over the globe. The Oppenheimer sees the world through a kind of quantum prism where two things can be true simultaneously. The world through his eyes is both living and incinerated, peaceful, and one blinding flash from being reduced to a cinder the next. The second quandary here has to do with the American effort to maintain an open and liberal society while also wrestling with the infiltration of communists and communist sympathizers into virtually every American institution, from academia to the press to the government. Was Oppenheimer a victim of McCarthy-era Red Panic? Or did his lax security practices and failure to inform officers that a communist spy was trying to get access to Los Alamos's secrets, is that what led to the Soviet Union getting the bomb? I don't know. Hard to say. What is lost by keeping brilliant people with red sympathies out of sensitive positions? Oppenheimer, 
absolute masterclass in how one can use editing to create narrative momentum. What we have here is literally a three-hour historical epic that consists entirely of dudes talking about science and communism and political knife fighting, a third of which is in black and white, the end of which is like super depressing, you know, kind of like, oh, we're all going to kill ourselves. How about that? Fun times. Uh, And the whole thing just moves forward, the momentum of a runaway train. Uh, Comparisons have been made to Oliver Stone's JFK, and they are apt in the sense of both movies essentially bend space-time through the magic of editing to keep the action moving without ever making the story seem unduly complicated. Um, It helps that this movie has one of the greatest casts ever assembled. I am not speaking excitedly. This is a fact. This is a factual truth. You got Killian Murphy. He's pretty great. But Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, Casey Affleck, Gary Oldman, Macon Blair, Alden Ehrenreich, Kenneth Branagh, Josh Hartnett, Matthew Modine, Dane DeHaan, Jason Clark, David Krumholtz. Every one of these guys could support a movie entirely on their own. I've watched movies starring all of these men as leading men, and they're all great and amazing in here. You could stock the entire best supporting actor race at the 2024 Oscars with guys just in this movie alone, it would be well justified. Alyssa, there are a million different threads we could tug here. I like to think of this movie as a not quite sequel to Dunkirk, right? That's about the end of one empire. This is about the beginning of another. But the first thing I have to ask you, I got to know, very important question, which format did you see the movie in? Um, I just saw it at my local Alamo because I, I would really love to drive to King of Prussia and see it in IMAX 70 millimeter, but I have two children and a day job, and unfortunately, that is not possible. So I saw it on a very large screen, but not in IMAX or 70 millimeter. It's so annoying that there's no IMAX 70 millimeter print in the DC area. It's I'm surprised it's not at one of the uh, Air and Space Museums. Yeah. All right, so let's set that aside. Uh, Alyssa, what did did you make of this movie? So I have to be honest, I feel like I was so sort of overwhelmed by it that I need to see it at least once and possibly twice more to really feel confident in what I think about it. And to a certain extent, this is just a reflection. You know, I've I've read American Prometheus, I'm the Pulitzer Prize winning biography by Martin Sherwin and Kai Bird, on which this movie is significantly based. Um, I also love Michael Frayn's Copenhagen, which I think is a play that is probably an unacknowledged influence on this screenplay. It is in many ways very different from this. It is a three-hander play won the Tony Award in 2000. And it it, it basically is Niels Bohr, who um, in Oppenheimer is played by Kenneth Branagh, his wife, Margretta, and Werner Heisenberg, um, the who led the German atomic weapons program, at least sort of one branch of it, meeting in the afterlife to try and figure out what happened in a conversation they had in Copenhagen during the war. So like Oppenheimer, it's a play that kind of hinges on ambiguity about a conversation, right? I mean, you know, Oppenheimer, you have the ambiguity about Oppenheimer's conversation with Hakan Chevalier, um, but also the, you know, Louis Strauss's sort of eternal misinterpretation of a conversation between Oppenheimer and Einstein that he assumes is about him, that in fact is not about him. And it's so interesting to sort of read these two texts against each other. I mean, I just, I found it, I am rarely sort of at a loss for words about a movie, but four days after seeing it, I still have not entirely got my thoughts around it. And I feel, I mean, Can like, I I'm ask, a, I, is there a part sure. of your thoughts, like, is, is part of your brain like, maybe I didn't like it? Or is it just like, I liked this, but I'm not sure how? Is it a, 
is there an ambiguity in your mind about like, do you think this was very good or you're not even sure about the just the, the overall quality? It kind of doesn't fit my frame of reference for thinking about movies, right? In that it's so dense and complex and overwhelming. There's stuff in it that I think doesn't work. I think the the real misstep in it is casting Gary Oldman as Harry Truman. I think that scene does not land well. It feels cartoony in a way that the rest of the movie just does not. In some ways, I wish Nolan had embraced the surreal moments a little bit more intensely. I mean, I think they're very effective. You know, the the sort of rally after Hiroshima that turns into this sort of nightmare in Oppenheimer's mind is effectively done. But I almost in some places wish it had been stranger. And I guess for a movie that I spend a lot of time dwelling on this question of whether Oppenheimer was a communist, it does not particularly capture the atmosphere in which people like Oppenheimer would have been sympathetic to communism, right? I mean, it's there's a sort of there's a little bit of an intellectual lacuna in the movie. There are so many things that are amazing about it, right? I mean, I think Killian Murphy is astonishing in it. Um, I think Robert Downey Jr. does things I would not necessarily have expected of him. And it's, you know, it's exciting in a way to see Nolan pick out people like Josh Hartnett, who, you know, were you know, kind of insubstantial stars of an earlier era and find something in them that I think other directors largely have not, although Guy Ritchie kind of did in Wrath of Man. There's been a nice little, like, heart and yeah. Um I was— uh, And I Operation mean, I, Fortune, Riz Deguerre. Yes, I love that one of the senators is played by the guy who plays the mayor on Buffy, one of the great, like, TV villains of all time, uh, Harry Groner. You know, and I, I was really, I was delighted that you mentioned David Crumholtz, Sonny, who I think has become just one of these incredibly reliable, lovely character actors. But I just, I don't think I didn't like it. I just don't think it's a movie that exists in the conventional categories of I liked this, I didn't like this. I can sum it up neatly. I just no, I found it. I don't. I, I think that's probably really, true. I think that is. Yeah, I found it just really. It. It's like looking at Guernica to a certain extent, right? And that, like, I don't know that I like. I don't find looking at Guernica like a pleasant or you know aesthetic experience necessarily. But I also kind of can't stop looking at it and seeing new things in it. And I want to go back and look at it again, right? I want to. I need to spend some more time with it to kind of sort it out. Okay. I'm you're, sorry. You're too, I feel like that's not helpful. You're too, you're, you're mud, you, what, you, what you're describing is transcendence. This is a transcendent film in a very real way. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I, I don't I, – I think I'm not done processing it, and therefore I can't quite say I – I have not landed, and therefore I can't describe the ground that I have touched down on. Yeah. Uh, Peter, what did you make of – Oppenheimer. So a thing that I've realized about myself as I've gotten older is that what I care about most in the world is a superior example of a thing that gets done a lot. Like someone has figured out how to make a better cocktail, how to write a better rock song, how to write like something that should be just sort of simple that in some sense anybody can do, right? Like anybody can make a, can make a Negroni. 
anybody can write uh, the, the power chord rock song. Anybody can play the guitar and sing along, right? Like, and then you hear the Beatles do it. And you hear come together and you're like, oh, 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 what? Well, like, ow, that like I did not realize that that could happen, right? Like, right. You hear Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys. And you're like, Jesus, actually, this is really hard to do well. This is a format that has an infinite horizon. There's no limit to what you can do with it. You just have to have a person who's like, yeah, I saw that in this super simple format of we're going to play three chords and kind of sing some harmonies on top of it. And I feel like Nolan is getting to that point as a filmmaker. There are still some like I I didn't I, I have it's not that I have no qualms with this movie just as a as a, as a technical piece of technical filmmaking in particular. I think Nolan still has a problem in of not caring that much about dialogue. He cares about the feel of dialogue. He cares about how it rolls off in an editing sense, right? He wants it to sort of be propulsive. But there are so many lines in this movie that are just like, they're not quite like tweets, but their Twitter theme is stated. They're like Twitter level theme is stated lines like that are just like, well, of course we all know that blah, blah, blah. But like, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. I don't care that the dialogue is kind of corny and kind of on the nose because the filmmaking craft here is just next level. It's just great. And like, it's just like, I, I just, I came into this movie hoping it would be pretty good. I'm a big Nolan fan thinking, well, this is a, this is a big swing. And what you see here is like the, the best example I can come up with is this is his saving private riot. Christopher Nolan is a guy who spent 20 years making movies that were essentially entertainment. Yes, there were big ideas. Yes, he often was dealing with time and memory and the nature of identity. There was a bunch of stuff actually about nuclear fears, even going back to the third Batman movie. Dark Knight Rises is like ends with a nuclear bomb. Tenet is all about like, what do we do about sort of like the, the big nuclear problem in the world? But it's a thriller. Like it's not it's not a big idea question movie of like, this is this is a problem with the world. And here he's making a biopic, a biopic, the most formulaic, most generic genre. Biopics just work like clockwork. They're two hours long. They have a rise and they have a fall. They have a midpoint where it's like, oh, I'm on top of the world. And then three quarters of the way, it's like I'm a drug addict. Right. Like it's a it's just Every biopic works exactly the same way. Oh, wait. And then Christopher Nolan comes along and is like, let's use Christopher Nolan techniques to tell the story of the man who created the atomic bomb. It will be a biopic and it will follow the three act structure. The end of the second act will be the explosion of the nuclear bomb, which is both a triumph and a huge turning point, possibly the lowest point in all of humanity. And you just watch everything that he's doing and you're like, Again, it's just like seeing seeing what a medium can do for the first time, seeing what someone who actually understands how these, in some ways, quite simple techniques. He's not doing anything. I won't say he's not quite doing anything I haven't seen before. He's not doing anything that, like, if you described it to me before I'd seen it, I'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? The biggest uh, innovation here basically is just that he's done a bunch of the sort of bomb and fire effects using analog, right? So all of this stuff that that um, Oppenheimer's like brain is like when we see him thinking by uh, sort of we, we will sometimes sort of cut away to 
close-ups of fire and explosions and all of that stuff was analog. That's unusual. But it's also like, okay, you filmed some weird fire stuff close up. Like, it's, it's great. Like, I, I don't want to under, underrate this, but like, it's also like, I can understand how all of this was done. And yet here is Christopher Nolan coming out and saying, I'm going to put all of this together. And I'm going to take all of these things that you've seen before, every, all of these techniques, and I'm going to make something that works and like fits together as a coherent whole in a way you have never seen before and is totally engrossing. We were talking about this on our on our text message group earlier today. This is a movie about about a, a cabinet hearing and a security clearance like legal hearing in a really small room. And he filmed it in IMAX, though, right? So it's so like somehow or another, he has made the smallest, most bureaucratic, most boring thing you could imagine. He has made it utterly epic, utterly engaging. This movie just grabs you from the beginning, from the minute one and rolls you through. You cannot look away. And it's three hours long and it's in one third in black and white. Like, I, I, again, it's not that I don't have any quibbles at all, but this is filmmaking on a like on a, a level that we almost never see. This is Nolan's bid for greatness. He is like, yes, I'm not just a great entertainer. I'm a real filmmaker who can who can take on the biggest issues and sell them to the masses and make people care. In the last 20 years, you can't name 10 other people in Hollywood who have successfully done that. I'm not even sure you can name five. Nolan just did. And like, I, I loved it. I just loved it. Can I ask what you guys thought of how this does or doesn't fit into Nolan's preoccupation with fathers and sons? So I have an interesting sort of theory about this, but I- I, I just want to hear your theory. Okay. Um, when I walked out of the theater, I said to my husband that I thought it was interesting for, you know, given Nolan's preoccupations, that the movie spends basically no time on Oppenheimer's actual living children and, in fact, treats them with, like, a very sort of dismissive contempt until I realized that it is – the bomb is his child, yeah. right? And it's a movie about a father who is hugely ambivalent about his own child, which the I think is not – of the atomic bomb. Yes. Uh, but I think this, to a certain extent, like that's thematically beautifully explored. Um, but it does sort of get at the point that you make about Nolan's kind of lack of writerliness. Like, you know, I think the the closing lines in this movie are it's something like, you know, about the risk of destroying the world and Oppenheimer saying like, I, I you know, I think we already have and sort of envisioning the world going up in flames. And you compare that to the end. Will you guys indulge me and let me just yeah. read the closing lines of Copenhagen? These words are spoken in a kind of chorus. So I won't say who says them. And sooner or later, there will come a time when all our children are laid to dust and all our children's children, when no more decisions, great or small, are ever made again, when there's no more uncertainty because there's no more knowledge. And when all our eyes are closed, when even the ghosts have gone, what will be left of our beloved world, a ruined and dishonored and beloved world? But in the meantime, in this most precious meanwhile, there it is, the trees in Fallad Park, Gammer Tingen and Bierbach and Mindelheim, our children and our children's children, preserved just possibly by that one short moment in Copenhagen, 
by some event that will never quite be located or defined by that final core of uncertainty at the heart of things. And look, Copenhagen is a, like it's a stage play, right? Um, it was actually adapted for television with Daniel Craig playing Werner Heisberg. But the idea of, you know, uncertainty as sort of the key principle, you know, the key principle in physics that kind of unlocks a lot of these questions, then becoming the animating theme of the play, there's nothing at that level of sort of writing or thematic coherence in Oppenheimer. You have the sort of fission, fusion, and sort of the black and white sentences, but the movie doesn't quite explain the scientific concepts well enough um, or rope them into the dialogue for it to kind of reach that conclusion. And I do think you're right that that is sort of Nolan's, he's so good with actors that he manages to make, you know, these men talking to each other compelling without needing to be, you know, an amazing dialogue stylist. And interestingly, I mean, some of the best lines in the film are things that people actually said, right? Like Isidore Rabi telling Oppenheimer that he doesn't want the conclusion of three centuries of physics to be a weapon of mass destruction. It's something Robbie really said to Oppenheimer when he was turning down an opportunity to work at Los Alamos. But it is it is an interesting sort of lacuna. And we've t- I think we've talked a lot on this podcast. Like I am, I'm a word person, right? I am very attracted to sharply written dialogue and dialogue that is either you know, really well written as naturalistic or, you know, mannered or stylized in a way that kind of elevates a film. And I'm, you know, I think slightly less sensitive to pure sensation in some cases than both of you are. But I, I think that's an interesting, just like a little bit of a gap to identify in Nolan's otherwise just sort of overwhelming artistry. Um, but there are, I mean, there are just eyes for detail in this movie that are incredible, right? I mean, Peter, do you remember the scene in the kitchen where Hakan Chevalier comes and asks Oppenheimer, you know, about the possibility of sort of passing secrets to the Soviets? Yes. And you remember he's making drinks, yes. right? And you notice that he's salting the rim of glasses. Yes. That actually was Oppenheimer's signature cocktail move, was martinis with lime and salt on the rims. And it's like the fact that something like that makes it into the movie is incredible. That also sounds like a gross thing to do with a martini. Is that correct? Well, salt in a martini is not necessarily gross. Uh, But salt and lime? uh, I wouldn't put a lime in a martini. But uh, look, people like their martinis how they like them. And and this is part of what makes this movie interesting is that it gets at the the uniqueness of the man, right? It, it is always trying to follow him into the place where he's just, where he's the only person who's like this. Yeah. And it, it is in some sense an argument that Oppenheimer was not just a unique individual, but the, or one of like, like a, like a, an individual who is so unique that you cannot actually, you can't capture him except in his contradictions. And so I actually had an argument with, uh, or a discussion with a, a friend who also saw this movie recently, who was like, well, it's trying to portray him in sort of this sort of like neither good nor bad, uh, kind of gray, per, morally gray person. And I think that's actually wrong. What this movie does that is interesting is it portrays him as fully black and fully white, very good and very bad. And it doesn't decide for you. Not only that, it doesn't just not decide for you. It demands that you accept that he is both. And it also suggests quite strongly 
that he saw himself both ways. And that's the only way we can understand this person is by realizing that he contained all of these things. He contained the murder of 200,000 people that also might well have been the saving of many more people, but maybe not. And he wasn't sure. And probably any given moment, he ha he contained both things in his head. And Sonny, now I'm going to let you jump in since I know, I know you love bombing people. No, I mean, uh, I the 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 interesting thing about this movie is that it doesn't get bogged down in the ethics yeah. of bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki because there's no moral difference between that and how the rest of this war was fought. Uh, there's no point in getting bogged down in that because it's it's a it's a simple fact and. It happened, and again, it's no different from the fire bombings of Tokyo or Dresden, or you know the the bombings of London or Manchuria or, or any or, or any other uh, myriad horrors of of World War II. Um, what's interesting? Instead, it's about the sort of the naivete of the scientists who think that they're going to be able to control the process. I mean, it's the it's, it's actually about the an enormous hypocrisy of the scientists in one very real way because a, a number of them are saying, "Well, we wanted to use it on the Germans, but now the Germans have been defeated." So we don't need to use it at all. And like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. There's actually no moral difference between bombing a German civilian population center and a Japanese civilian population center. Like, I, I, I you want to end the war as quickly as possible to save the largest number of lives, and you do it no matter what. Um, but the uh, what the movie gets at, and which I think is is interesting and true, is the way in which the development of the atomic bomb led to the arms race that led to the hydrogen bomb, which in turn led to the possibility for the first time ever for humanity to destroy itself. That's a very real thing. That's a very dangerous thing, obviously. I don't think I'm, you know, going out on a limb here by saying that's a, that's a dangerous thing. And it's unlocking that secret, the broader secret of nuclear power is the thing that you know, both damned and saved humanity. And this is this is the interesting thing about the movie is that, again, Oppenheimer sees these things happening simultaneously. He sees the cheering crowd alive and, you know, full of joy and life and uh, also sees the blinding flash that will eliminate them all at some moment. And those two things exist simultaneously in his head because it is possible for it to happen at any time. And that's, that's a terrifying image. That's a terrifying vision. At the same time, you know, we, we talk about the possibility of of all of these lives ending simultaneously. At the same time, mutually assured destruction worked. It worked. It stopped great power warfare. Chris Nolan didn't have to go fight in the fields of, you know, Russia somewhere. There was no great power warfare for going on a century now. That's a big win. It's a lot of lives saved. I don't know. It's interesting Interesting to think about from that uh, kind of, again, quantum perspective, life I mean, and death simultaneously. The whole thing is that it works up until it doesn't. And that is the last sequence in the movie is that eventually it will possibility. Maybe you've created the possibility of it not working. You never know in a way that it didn't prior to the atom bomb. So in some ways, we should like table the nuclear brinksmanship argument here because like we're not going to get anything at, from the movie that solves it. What I think is interesting here is Nolan uses that, but also Nolan uses his whole toolkit of this sort of fragmented editing uh, in which that it, that is memory like in the way that it that it captures sequences of events i mean that first hour of this movie is kind of confusing and then at the end you're like actually all those scenes made sense because somehow or another your brain just sort of like puts it all together and 
like that's a very difficult thing to do as a as an editor as a filmmaker but what he's doing is giving you this sense i think of how oppenheimer thought of himself and he's allowing you into an well okay it's christopher nolan's interpretation of oppenheimer's brain space not actually oppenheimer's but this is incredibly rare to see on film and it's incredibly rare to see it done at all but much less so effectively which is that you can see that that he, that the man had on the one hand he viewed himself as brilliant as so much better than all of these other people he was surrounded with on the other hand, and also like you know a leader of the great minds of his generation and he also viewed himself as possibly a monster possibly the worst person who had ever lived possibly somebody who had maybe even regard almost independent of good or bad somebody who had opened a gate into a world that was unknown and extremely dangerous and maybe worse than the world that, that came before because of it and to see a filmmaker be able to cast that spell over an audience to show them a different way of thinking, to bring them into the mind of another person, and especially to do it in a hundred million dollar movie that is like a giant, clearly a, a big hit in a way that you just would not expect like a pitch about like, yeah, this movie is a lot of meetings and part of it's in black and white and Robert Downey Jr. is, you know, mostly there to explain the complications of the Senate nomination process. Like, you wouldn't think, oh, that's a big hit. Like, Nolan did that. And that, yeah, that's what I gravitated to in, in this, is it's it's both very good and then also, also manages to be very good in a way that's super accessible. All right, we're, uh, we're running along here. Let's wrap things up. Alyssa, uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on Oppenheimer? Yeah, thumbs up, man. Um, even if I, mostly because I need to see it again, probably several more times. Peter? Same, thumbs up. Thumbs up, good movie. Uh, all right, that is it for this week's episode. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. Don't grow, will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Munch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. <laughs>